You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Melchizedek and David, Edward Gosnell will present all the scriptural references to Melchizedek and skillfully unravel the mystery behind him. Then Philip Edwards will look at just one episode in the life of David and wonder how this young lad had such faith. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to our students for today's teaching. Well, um, a rare treat this evening. Good evening. A rare treat. We have a few words on Melchizedek. And uh, while researching for this, I I came across a video of a talk by uh, a chap called Don Carson, an American Bible teacher. Um, And it was called Getting Excited About Melchizedek. I just dipped into the middle of it because it looked a bit technical to me. And... uh, and I could see that he was really getting excited. He was waving his arms about all over the place and mopping the sweat from his brow. And then I realized, of course, the reason he was mopping the sweat from his brow was that, uh, that he, it's actually quite difficult getting over all this stuff about uh, Melchizedek. So I decided he must be going for the technical version. So uh, I didn't, I, I didn't read, uh, listen to uh, listen to any more any more of this it was obviously difficult for him to put it over even though he was a man with a he has got a fantastic uh, uh, bible teaching reputation so if he's struggling what hope for me so uh, i think probably we better pray and uh, and lord lord i um, just thank you thank you for your your bible for your word and uh, thank you for the people that teach it to us. And we pray that uh, tonight, each one of us will get something, something out of this. And, uh, and I pray that uh, all, any word that's not of you, you will bin. Thank you. Anyway, so who is the mysterious Melchizedek? Some have suggested he might be the Holy Spirit. Some have suggested he might be an angel. Some have said he's the son of Shem, Noah's Noah's son, must have lived a long time. And some have suggested that he might be uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of of Jesus. Um, I think it's called a, a Christophany. But no, he's none of these. As we'll see, Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. He foreshadows Jesus. Melchizedek is mentioned in three places in the Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and uh, and then in three chapters of of Hebrews. So the letter to the Hebrews. So I thought we'd just have a look at uh, each of those passages. And, uh, and see what we can gather about him. In Genesis 14, we're told that um, Sodom and Gomorrah 
and three other neighbouring kingdoms have for some while been subjected to the rule of a chap by the name of Kedor Laoma. He's, um, he's, he's uh, kept a pretty tight hold on these uh, the five kingdoms, including Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's um, extracted large amounts of money out, out of them during this period. And uh, they are pretty fed up about it and have decided to rise up against him. Kedaleoma and his allies react pretty strongly to this and immediately invade these areas with plenty of looting and pillage in proper Middle Eastern fashion. In the process, they managed to capture Lot, uh, Abram's uh, nephew, and, uh, and, and his family. And this is all too much for Abram. As you may remember, Abram, they, uh, Lot and Abram, Abram used to live very close together, but they became so rich and so, had so many herds and so, so much in the way of livestock that they couldn't continue in the same place. So Lot moved out uh, to the Sodom and Gomorrah area. And, um, and Abram uh, obviously uh, was very close to his uh, his uh, nephew, and therefore uh, uh, decided that he had put together an army, attack Kedaloma, and uh, indeed he did, and won a great victory and freed uh, his, his nephew and his family. And the story is now taken up in Genesis 14, uh, and I'll just read you 17, verses 17 to 20. After Abram returned from de defeating Kedorlaomer, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Chavez. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So here we've got some Melchizedek background, something to get us, get us off the ground. Firstly, his name, Melech, in Hebrew, means, uh, means king. Zedek, in Hebrew, means righteousness. So here we are, he's a king of righteousness. He was king of Salem, as it says here, which is the old name for Jerusalem. Uh, Salem being peace, meaning peace. Uh, he was king of peace. Um, the passage says he was a priest of God Most High, uh, the creator, the creator God indeed. He was not a pagan priest, nor was he a Jewish priest. So where did he fit in? The law and the sacrificial system administered by the Jewish priests, I shouldn't say Jewish priests, probably is, is, is Israeli, is, Israelite priests from the tribe of Levi hadn't yet been instituted by God through, through Moses. So he's, uh, he's well before their time. And it's interesting to note that uh, Abram obviously wasn't the only one worshipping God most high. There were others around, uh, Melchizedek uh, at the very least. So going back to him, he was a Canaan king priest. 
He blessed Abraham, Abram, an indication, at least to Jewish people, that uh, he was superior to Abram. Abram tithed to him, another indication that, he, that uh, Melchizedek was superior to Abram. Note also, he came out with bread and wine to, uh, uh, to Abram. Uh, we can talk about that perhaps later, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's, I, I would have thought, uh, more, than a, more than a coincidence. So in summary, Melchizedek is king of righteousness, he's king of peace, he's priest of God Most High, he's superior to Abram, and he brings bread and wine. Pretty good evidence, as I said earlier, that he may be a type of Jesus, a picture, perhaps, of Jesus. Um, perhaps he foreshadows Jesus. This sort of thing is called typology, and there's loads of it in the Old Testament. It makes it actually, as uh, Don Carson was saying, quite exciting <laughs> to actually put all, these, put all these together, find them. And um, it's all about illustrating the work and purpose of Jesus. You, you look at those and you, see, and you see something of those things about, about Jesus. A good example is described in Numbers 21, uh, verses 4, 4 to 9. When the Israelites were in the, uh, were in the desert on their way uh, from Egypt in ever-decreasing circles from, uh, from uh, Egypt to the Promised Land, I'll just read you these, these few verses from, from Numbers 21. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea, to go through Edom, to go round Edom. Edom had told them that they couldn't go through the land, so they had to go round it. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of, this, out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned when we spoke against you and against God. Pray the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole and anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake, was able to look at the bronze snake and live. So God provided healing for the Israelites in this, in this way. And he's providing it for us today. It's a picture of what he did when Jesus was lifted up on the cross in atonement for our sin. We turn and look up to him and are healed. So this is, a, again, same sort of thing. Uh, the, the, um, the pole with the snake was, uh, was a type of Jesus, is a type of Jesus. Um, uh, it's, it, this is referred to again in um, John 3, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life 
in him. One more. Um, Exodus 12, on um, God's instruction for the celebration of the Passover, he tells the Israelites that their sacrifices must be animals without any defect. It's a sacrificial lamb that's referred to in this chapter of Exodus. And again, it's a type of Jesus. As John the Baptizer said of Jesus, he's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And in um, 1 Peter 1, 19, Peter says, you weren't redeemed by money or anything like that, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So that's, that's sort of roughly what uh, typology is uh, all about. Uh, one more thing to say about Melchizedek as uh, sort of background. Um, there is a good deal more for the adventurous to read about Melchizedek. Um, actually, I think... Uh, um, Philip gave me a book along those lines which could take you down some quite interesting, uh, quite interesting uh, avenues. Um, he's apparently mentioned in lots of the biblic- ex- extra-biblical writings, such as Two Enoch, the Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, the Jewish uh, historians um, Philo and, um, and Josephus. Um, while recognize, I'm sh- recognizing, I'm sure, they, this sort of background information can be really helpful. I think they're um, well beyond my pay grade, so I haven't, I haven't gone down that particular, that particular route. So, the next mention of Melchizedek is Psalm 110, which is the most quoted uh, psalm in the New Testament. I'll, I'll, I'll read it because it's, it, it's, it's quite short. The Lord, note capital letters, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit in the place of honour at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. When you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. He will shatter heads over the whole earth, but he himself will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. So what's happening here, this this psalm is connecting Melchizedek with the Messiah. David wrote about a future king. David was writing this psalm. He wrote about a future king. Maybe maybe a messianic figure, probably was, um, as uh, as we perhaps will see. Um, uh, Descended from David, David himself. In Matthew 22, uh, Jesus confirms it, it's him. In talking with the Pharisees, uh, he confirms that it's him and, uh, and angers them greatly. The psalm begins by saying, this future king will have greater power, honour, authority than any human king before him. This king is not only going to sit at God's right hand, 
this king's going to put all his enemies beneath his feet and he's also he's also going to be a priest not just a levitical priest of the sort that carried out the prescribed sacrifices um, which were of course taking place every day now we were you know this is time of uh, david um, not just uh, the sort of levitical priest that was carrying out the prescribed sacrifices but Instead, he's going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So here again, he's a priest, he's a king, he's the Messiah. He's looking a bit like Jesus. It does cause me to wonder whether the readers of this psalm might have been scratching their heads when they were, uh, when they were reading this. How can this be? Look what happened to Saul when he attempted to combine the role of a priest with his kingship. Uh, he, uh, he actually was very swiftly removed by God from his position as, as king. So this king that we're talking about here must be someone who's a very, very different king from this uh, from, from uh, those that they know, have known from the past, and a very, very different priest from the ones that they knew so far. So that's, the, that's Psalm 110. Let's come to Hebrews. This, uh, it's this letter that actually explains the Old Testament passages to us. It's a letter written to um, Messianic Jews in, uh, in Rome, um, they're all suffering severe persecution and they're thinking they're, they're going to head back to the synagogue. They're going to go back to Judaism. That's what they're thinking they should do. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to dissuade them and help them to understand how vastly superior the uh, gospel of Jesus is, is, to the, is to the law. Melchizedek gets mentioned in chapters 5 and 6, quite briefly, and then seven. In five and six, having told, having just mentioned Melchizedek, he then says, he then says to them, <laughs> it's, I think, I think Phil's mentioned it in the, in, in the past, right, I'm going to talk about Melchizedek, but remember, this is advanced stuff. You can't sit on the, uh, uh, on this easy teaching about, about uh, Jesus, Jesus forever. And so he, so the writer takes up uh, in chapter seven. The uh, uh, he gives he gives he gives them an explanation of Melchizedek for the whole of chapter seven to underline how important he is to them. So let's. Just, I'll just. I won't read the whole of uh, of Hebrews seven. Um, I I I'll kick off with just verses one to one to three. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, he met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, 
like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. I think we've probably all got the, the, um, the gist of the, uh, of the earlier parts, parts of this, um, re- uh, referring to him as a, a uh, priest of God Most High, referring to him as King of Salem. That's, that's uh, I think we've all uh, got to grips with, with that from, uh, from Genesis. But what about verse 3? Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Was he, was he really a, was he a nowhere man? Was he, did, he, did he come from nowhere? Did he go nowhere? Did he have no birth, no death? This is obviously very fertile territory for those suggesting that this is a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of, of, uh, of Jesus. However, this seems unlikely. As it says at the end of verse 3, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. If, if it was a Christophany, then surely the writer would have said that he was the Son of God, not like the Son of God. So why does he say that he's, he was without father and mother? It was to confirm that he wasn't a Levitical priest. He probably did have a mother and father, but no, no one knew who they were. And so for the purpose of uh, showing that he wasn't a Levitical priest, the writer chooses to highlight the fact that he was without, as far as he was concerned and, and everyone else was concerned, without beginning or end. The explanation for all this is, is contained in the rules of the priesthood. To be a, a Levitical priest, you not only had to know and be able to prove who your mother and father were, but you also had to be able to trace your whole family line all the way back to, a- to Aaron. Um, in the Levitical records. Um, this is highlighted, actually, if you look at Ezra, uh, uh, two, Ezra chapter 2, um, which is the one probably you haven't read because it's got a thousand names in it of all the, all the people coming back from exile. But uh, there's a little bit in there in, in 262, um, which, um, which says, here we are, They searched for their names in the genealogical records, but they were not found, so they were disqualified from serving as priests. These were people who had put themselves forward as priests, but their record couldn't be found, and uh, and so they were were turned down. Um, So the rules were pretty strict about uh, Levitical uh, priests. They had to have this history, they had to have the genealogy, and uh, Melchizedek didn't. He had no father, no mother, uh, without beginning or end. The writer here is, of course, talking about a different, a different priesthood, a priesthood that goes on forever. A Levitical priesthood, a Levitical priesthood began actually effectively at 30 years old and ended 
at 50 years old and could not have provided the superior, never-ending priesthood that the writer is talking about. So a Levitical priest could not have provided a type of Jesus. Have to be somebody with another type of priesthood who doesn't have the 20-year time frame of the Levitical priests, i.e. Melchizedek. His priesthood was not founded on genealogy, and according to scripture, he had none, no recorded birth, no recorded death. His priesthood hung not on his genealogical qualifications, but is actually on his own personal worth. Just like Jesus' priesthood, which was based on his own personal worth, his sonship. So Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. Added to this, the, the, write, uh, the writer to the Hebrews takes us back to, uh, to uh, Genesis 14 and points out that at this meeting, even the great Abram tithes 10% of his plunder to Melchizedek and also blesses Abraham. In those days, it was always the greater that received the tithes and always the greater that uh, gave the blessing. Pointing to the greatness of Melchizedek and underlining how he typifies the one who's to come, the one who lives forever. As it says in Hebrews 7, 16, the one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And it's interesting to note the, uh, the plight of those, uh, those persecuted Hebrews to whom this letter is, is addressed. They've been brought up to depend on this uh, sacrificial law administered by the uh, Levitical uh, priests. Um, it, for them, it was the way to uh, forgiveness and an entrance into the, uh, into the presence of God. Now, having heard the gospel, they've turned, they've turned, uh, turned away from the, from the old, old ways and um, are relying on the testimony of the apostles that Jesus has made a once and for all sacrifice for their atoning sin. So what am I talking about? Atoning sacrifice for sin. <laughs> He'd made a once for all sacrifice for their sin. He'd torn the, torn the curtain in the temple right, right down the middle. So all who believe could now go into the Holy of Holies, the very presence, into the very presence of God. However, through these tough times, these uh, Hebrews were, were thinking, what have we got? We've got no altar, we've got no robes, got no sacrifices, no incense. Have we got anything? Are we, are we completely up the creek without a, without a paddle? But the writer's saying to them, no, stick with it. The one who holds on firmly to the gospel will certainly be saved. I know you're worried that you've given up the old system. I know you're worried that... Uh, It's, um, it's, there's, there's, nothing to be, there's nothing to be seen in the, way of, um, in the way of sacrifices or anything like this. 
but uh, remember the priesthood to which you have come is far more significant than the Levit Levitical one. It's a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And the writer say, is saying to them, remember him, he's the one who Abraham, Abraham paid tithes, he's the one who blessed Abraham, both of which confirm his superiority. We, know, we may struggle a bit with all this, but uh, the Hebrews are, un, are likely to have understood about Melchizedek immediately. I don't think the uh, bread and wine brought out by Melchizedek in Genesis is mentioned in uh, Hebrews. But it can't be a coincidence, can it? It's also interesting, this symbol of Jesus' sacrifice does have roots that are more... Well, they're before the institution of the Passover. So I don't know what... Uh, that's a, a question I suppose we have to ask ourselves. Why, why the bread and wine so, so well, well before the Passover? And incidentally, another thought, uh, um, uh, looking, looking up about uh, Melchizedek, the Mormons um, ordain their priests into an, the order, an order of Melchizedek. This is obviously a fair amount of nonsense uh, because there is only one priest in the order of Melchizedek and guess who it is? It's Jesus. So Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. The uniqueness of his priesthood points us forward to the one who ultimately is the fulfillment of the role of high priest. So in conclusion, what can we draw from the passages? First of all, for me, it's a confirmation, a further confirmation really, that all scripture is, is God-breathed. The Old Testament raises the questions and uh, the New Testament answers them through Jesus. So really you could say that uh, without, the old, without the New Testament, the Old Testament doesn't make sense at all. Interesting thought. Second, hopefully for most of us, we've got the point that the writer to the Hebrews is making, namely the insufficiency of the law and the sufficiency of Jesus. In Hebrews 7, 18 and 19, we're told, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced, by which we draw near to God. So how do sinful people draw near to God? Perhaps it's going to church. Perhaps it's listening to preaching. Perhaps it's uh, living by rules. Perhaps it's being baptised. But the gospel is not really that, is it? It's not really an invitation to, Im to imitate Jesus. In fact, it definitely is an invitation to imitate Jesus. It's an, it's, it's an invitation to be transformed by Jesus, to be born again of the Spirit, to come helplessly to the cross of Jesus, the one who uh, Melchizedek uh, foreshadowed 3,000 years ago. Amen. We come to the sixth character that we want to study in this uh, brief course about so many people that are there uh, in the Bible. Those which have already been 
spoken about, often we just have a little bit of scripture about them. So we just get a brief glimpse of these people. Mary Magdalene, there wasn't a lot, was there, about Mary, actually, or Joseph, um, Hannah. And again, we've heard already about Melchizedek this evening. We have to pull out what verses are there, put it together, read it, and then a certain amount of what we teach then, or what people think, is conjecture. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We have to try and imagine or think or pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show us how this all fits together. My character, there's loads written about him. Um, apparently, there's about 60 chapters that covers his life, and there's over 1,140 references to this person. It's David. So to uh, just speak to you for half an hour or so tonight, I've just got to pick one episode in his life, just one tiny little bit, and uh, uh, try and get some points from his life that can help us, that can teach us about this. I've chosen possibly the most familiar story uh, you all know about, of course, uh, his slaying of Goliath. Now, now, we know the story well, but it's interesting when you read it and you read it carefully and slowly, you think, oh, I never saw that before. Oh, oh I didn't realise that. Or perhaps I did and I forgot that bit of the story. So um, I'm going to ask Eileen if she'll read. Uh, that's part of uh, that chapter to us. It's, um, if you want to follow it, it's 1 Samuel 17. And Eileen's just going to read the first 40 verses to us, just the first 40 verses to us. So. So it's 1 Samuel 17, 1 to 40. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. 
Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, 
I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, and then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Finish the story, you say. Finish it. <laughs> but why? We know the end. I've chosen that point to stop the story because that's the most important point. At that point, he had already defeated Goliath. I'll get there in the end, so I'll explain what I mean. You've got to hold this idea in mind that David was a boy. I know in the version you read, it says a young man. In my version, it says he was a boy. This is a boy. We don't know exactly how old he was. We know he was no older than 15. We can work that out because we know when kings went to the throne and all those sorts of things. So we can actually pinpoint his age. So he was anything from 13 to 15 probably when he did this. I want you to think of a 13-year-old that you might know. That's someone in their second form of a secondary school just out of, well, when I went to secondary school, we had to wear short trousers in the first year. That's not the case today. But just out of his short trousers. Um, you've got to let that sink in because it's vital to the whole understanding of this story. It's really quite vital that this was just a young lad. A young lad. Three figures stand out in this uh, story sharply to us. Um, there's a fourth, I suppose, in uh, David's older brother, but he just plays this small part. It's really the Philistine champion, Goliath. He's obviously big in the whole thing. There's the king of Israel, who's Saul, and a shepherd boy, David. They're the three main characters that we have. Goliath, a giant of a man, nine feet. <laughs> I'm about five foot ten, I think, if I st stretch up, okay. Nine feet is just enormous. Just enormous. And of course, if you're that tall, you're probably fairly broad as well. Heavily armed, it says. It's apparent from the way we read the story that the Israelites had looked intently at this man, so much so they could describe everything he had. 
what his helmet was made of and what uh, weapons he had and what they were made of and how heavy the metal was in it. They go into great detail, don't they? They don't just say, oh, he was, he was armed. It says about how, um, uh, how he had a, a shield. It must have been fairly big. He didn't even carry the shield. It says someone else carried it for him, uh, an enormous shield. And it talks about this great spear or javelin in some scripture. It, it was slung on his back and it, how long this shaft was and the weight of the, the iron at the end and all this stuff and the sword that he had that was enormous. And of course, David took the sword in the end. I could just see David as a boy at the end of this story. And I said, I wouldn't go there, but I'm there now. <laughs> he, he lifts up this sword to chop off this giant's head, doesn't he? It must have been enormous for him. Just the weight of the thing was probably an effort for this boy. Not that he was a weakling, I'm not saying that, but, you know, he was a boy. And of course, he was boasting, wasn't he, this Goliath? He boasted of what he would do to anyone who defied him. Uh, their body would be fed, it says, to the birds and the animals. Oh, definitely, I'll slaughter you. You have no chance against me. So that was this Goliath character. Moving on to Saul, it says of Saul, he was taller than anyone else in Israel. So at least he was a bit more of a match for Goliath. He was taller than anyone else. And of course, he wasn't nine foot, maybe he was six foot six or something. I don't know, something like that. Still a good few feet shorter, but he was tall, more of a match. He too had a great suit of armor that he wore and um, the finest weapons, I'm sure, that Israel could produce. But he dared not adventure into this conflict because he knew the odds were overwhelming. He would lose. He knew he would lose. He was intimidated, just like everyone else was intimidated. So I'm not being hard on Saul. I'm sure he was a valiant fighter. But you know when you're going to lose, so you back down on those days. We move on to David now, because he's the, the centre of the whole thing, isn't he? He was a boy. He carried no sword, but he had a staff. But even his staff was probably a crook, wasn't it? It was a shepherd's crook. It wasn't really a staff as we think about it, you know. It, could, it, was, it was a tool for his work to help him being a shepherd. He wore no armour. And he had no weapons apart from this sling with the stones that he would carry in his purse. But he was in possession of something. This mystical spiritual power. He carried it in his heart. See, the living God was a reality to him. He was as real to David as Goliath and Saul were to David. Just as he could see the, the power of these men and the authority that they had and the, the voice, that he knew God. He knew something of the power of God. And he had no doubt in his mind that God would vindicate his name. This is important. 
God didn't slay Goliath for Israel. He didn't slay Goliath for the sake of David. He slayed Goliath for his own name's sake. His name was being insulted. And so he would vindicate his name. And David knew this. This is my God that you are insulting. I will kill you because you're insulting my God. And he knew God would vindicate himself in front of the people. How is it possible that this boy's faith could be so strong? Do you know anyone of 13 with such faith that would make such a stand for God? I don't. I definitely wouldn't at 13. I don't know where my head was when I was at 13, but it wasn't about vindicating the name of God. That's for absolute certain. See, this boy, he was born for this. He was born for it. He tells us in one of his psalms about, he talks about when he was knit together in his mother's womb. Do you remember that psalm? God formed him to be the man that he wanted him to be. Let me remind you, it's Psalm 139, and it's verse 15 and 16. Psalm 139, 15 and 16. He says this, My frame, David speaking now, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, he says. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. When God formed him, he formed him how he wanted him to be. We are all created for God's pleasure and his purposes. So God formed him with these particular giftings and attributes and blessings that when he was to grow, he would do what he wanted him to do. God has no favourites. Therefore, when you were being formed and created by God, he fashioned you, knowing exactly what he ordained you to do, he put you together with all the giftings and the attributes that were necessary for you to fulfill his pleasure and his purpose. You see how important you are. And the wonderful thing is, you're unique. There is no one else like you. We know that all our fingerprints are different, don't we? Apparently so are our toe prints and our iris and the retina in our eye, and our ears, and the markings on our tongue, and the way we walk, they're all unique to you. No one else walks like you, has a tongue like yours, has the same ear shape as yours. We are uniquely made by God for his purpose and his pleasure. When you were being thought of, 
he was already fashioning and molding exactly what he wanted you to be. How did David know this? This is amazing, isn't it? The things that David knew. You are then created for a purpose. That's it. So am I. And when we get to the end, we'll find out whether we fulfilled the purposes, whether we brought him pleasure. That's what the end will reveal to us. <laughs> it was no accident he was a shepherd. He had to be a shepherd. For God to fashion him and mould him to the man he was to be, he had to be a shepherd. He had to be a poet. He had to be a musician and a psalmist. He had to be, and so God put it in him. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. You say, oh, we all can if we try. Maybe, but it would be so hard, so irksome, so difficult that it would be painful for me to even get there. So we don't bother. But there's other things that attract me. That, that delight me. And so I find myself doing these with passion and enthusiasm, like all of us, you see. Finding out how God has formed us and fashioned us and pursuing those things. As a shepherd boy, then, he would be alone for hours on the hillside with his sheep and his God. You see, that was all part of it. For this boy to develop this sort of faith at such a young age, God had to somehow woo him, bring him to a place and cause him to have his mind fixed upon him. And so what better to be than a shepherd? Alone for hours, just looking at the creation, listening, talking, writing poetry, singing his songs. He was very gifted. This is who he was. Groomed by God. That has a negative uh, tone about it today, but you understand being groomed, being fashioned and made. Groomed by God, just like you have been groomed by God. Just like you. Just like me. He wasn't disturbed, was he, at all, by what Saul said to him. <laughs> it's incredible. He stands before the king as a boy, and he can speak quite boldly. He's articulate. He can explain things, and yet he's just a lad. He talks to the other soldiers, and they say all sorts of things, and he's... He's taking it in and he's sort of thinking, I don't know quite if I agree with what you're saying. He's not rude. He doesn't answer them back like he doesn't the king. In fact, he's not rude to anybody, is he? He's, he's a gracious boy. Maybe that's part of what God groomed in him. <laughs> he knew the nearness of his God. I thought for a minute, were there other people like this in Scripture that God had fashioned and made and groomed and prepared? One person, I could have thought of others, I'm sure, but jumped to my mind, Queen Esther. 
isn't it? I mean, growing up, she never thought she would become a queen, ever. She was a Jewish girl, I mean, but obviously God had groomed her and fashioned her and made her. And so when it was her opportunity to step forth to fulfill the pleasure and the purposes of God, there she was. Beautiful. <laughs> See, God crafted her beautiful. She had some giftings that obviously the king really liked. More than just her beauty, I'm sure there were lots of beautiful girls, but he had fashioned something within this girl that he wanted her to be his queen. A similar thing was said to her, and who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. You see? You're unique to God, special to God, crafted and groomed and made in the way you are to fulfill the purposes of God. We have to see ourselves as this. We have to see ourselves as unique and special. Otherwise, we'll just shrink back into the wallpaper, just not want to be seen or observed, or we will end up echoing what the devil says. You're not important. Your life doesn't count. God would never use you. That's not true. That's not true for anyone. David's faith has also been exercised in lonely conflict. He wasn't a superboy. I always think it comical when Samson is depicted with these great muscles. But it wasn't his great muscles that protected him or caused him to be, you know, the destroyer of the Philistines. It was the power of God. He never had any muscles at all. You need to throw away all those children's books that you have. Well, you know, understand what I'm saying. They're all right for children, but we have to move on and say, is this real? No, Samson was strong because it says the Spirit of God came upon him. He was only a child. When he had to defend his flock against a lion and a bear, can you believe that? A lion? There's two things I'd possibly do if a lion appeared. I would either freeze and not be able to move until it mauled me to death, or I would crash out through the first door I could find and keep running and running and running and running. I mean, that's the two reactions, obviously. Not this boy. God is talking to him, you see, all the time. He has spent so long on his own, as it were, with his psalms and his songs and his poetry and his God, he can hear the voice of God telling him. And instead of running, God gives him wisdom and skill. It says the lion has already taken the lamb to consume it. That's what it says. You wouldn't go and disturb a lion's dinner time, would you? 
The lion is focused on devouring his prey. We don't know how David did it, but God showed him how to distract him. I know that. And in the distraction, he was able to get the lamb away from the lion. See, God's smart. He can outsmart anything. And so when he steals the lamb away, perhaps the lion then turns and realises what's happening. And before he knows it, it says he's, David's on him and he's got his mane and he kills the lion. Incredible. That must be the power of God in you. It's got to be the power of the Spirit of God. You can't kill a lion like that. And if you were a boy of 13, how could you have done that? It's impossible. So he gives him wisdom and skill and courage and strength. You see, it was there in the secret place that God was training him. It's in the secret place that God is discipling you. In the home setting, in the work environment, he's discipling and discipling. Before this boy was ever in the public glare, God had trained him and discipled him already as a small boy. Just like you and me, you see, he disciples us in the secret place, in the home. Sometimes the home can be the hardest place to be a Christian, but that's the environment where he disciples us the most, without a shadow of a doubt. See, on Sunday, everyone looks good, doesn't they, at church, all spruced up and shining and nice and like butter wouldn't melt in their mouth and, you know, sweetness and light. Of course, that's the glare of public life, you see. But that's not where the discipling takes place. It's in the home. It's in the quiet. It's where no one sees us. That's where it takes place. God spoke into the heart of David. He said, David, we can do this. We've been here before. You know what to do. You just follow my instructions. You do what my spirit inspires you to do. And I will not let you down. I will not desert you. <laughs> I've discovered that God leaves nothing to chance. As I look back sometimes on my life and see that happened because I was supposed to do that. And if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done that. And if I didn't experience that, I wouldn't be capable of doing this. That's the way it works. He's discipling us all the time. We learned so much last week about how much God loves us. Do you think he would leave anything to chance in your life? He loves you too much. Now, sometimes you're stubborn and you don't listen to him and you're resistant and you want to do things your own way. We suffer because of that. But if we can learn to listen and just, he will equip us for the things that he has called us to do.
our faith is tested in the cauldron of our hearts. That is where faith is developed, in your heart. First, it's developed in your heart. It's not, it's not developed in the experiences of life. It's developed in here. And as God develops faith in here, when we step out, it's what's in here enables us to do stuff in the open. It says in Galatians 5 and 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And love is formulated in the heart. So faith flows through a heart of love. That's where it starts. Hmm. I'm sure David loved and respected his older brother. He was his eldest brother, Eliab. When Samuel went to the house to anoint the next king, he thought it was Eliab, didn't he? He said, bring out your son. And when he sees him, he was tall, it says, and he was fair with features, a good-looking man. He thought, this, this is the next king. He's fit for the job. Hmm. This day, it was this brother who rebuked him, and so harshly. See, I have an older brother, and I look up to him. I've always looked up to him. As a child, I was seven years younger, so I definitely would look up to him. When we had a problem, me and my other brother, who was a year or two older, we'd never say we'd go and ask mum and dad. We'd go and ask John. We'd always go and ask John. John, he was the one, the older brother, you see. It is the way it is with siblings, especially if there's older ones. We sometimes are closer to them than our parents because they understand us, they're closer to us. We play with them sometimes and we, we know each other well. So he really respected his eldest brother. This day he rebukes him. How dare, he said, how dare you suggest that these Israelites are cowards? How dare you come and say that? That's what he was inferring. Why are you asking about the rewards, he says. The parents would not have to pay taxes. He would get a wife out of the whole deal. Not so a boy of 14 particularly wanted a wife because the idea it would be for a man. And wealth, a tremendous amount of wealth. Why are you asking about these things, he says. Why are you here anyway? Have you left your sheep alone in the desert? That's nasty, isn't it? If one thing he was good at, and they knew he was good at this, it was looking after his sheep. That was a snide remark. Horrible from his oldest brother. And then he calls him conceited and wicked even. For being there, wow, that really hurt him. You know, sometimes it doesn't matter what people say about us, but when those who know us and love us say things about us, that cuts us down, doesn't it? It's like, ah, don't you say this? It doesn't matter what they say. They don't know me, but you know that's not true. How 
can you say those things? He was only a boy, but his heart was strong, trusting in his God. You see, that's what we need, strong hearts. If we have strong hearts, our hearts will rule our heads. See, if his heart wasn't strong, he could have said anything to his brother, couldn't he? Could have been angry, resentful, bitter, twisted. Could have sought to defend himself, done any of these things. It's at this point he defeats Goliath. It's at this point because his heart is in charge, not his head. See, when he runs out to defeat Goliath, he's not using his head, he's using his heart. And his heart was steadfast. The real enemy that we face is not the obstacle in front of us. It never is. It wasn't the giant shouting on the side of the hill, come to me and I'll feed your body to the birds and to the animals. It wasn't this great big spear javelin thing he had on his back or his enormous sword. The real enemy was the voice in the heart that said, run. Run. Back off. Don't see this through. Have you been there? Have you heard the voice? It's that which intimidates, you see. It isn't the Goliaths of this world. It is the voice in the heart from Satan that would cause you to throw the towel in, to withdraw, not to stand firm, not to hold your ground, not to advance against the enemy. It's that voice in the heart. <laughs> and it often comes from those closest to us. Not because they're nasty. It's because they love us. Maybe Eliab was thinking, if I put him off, he'll go home. This boy's crazy. I've heard what he's going to plan to do. I've got to put him off, got to send him home. And sometimes those who are close to us want us to stop advancing, as it were, and so they, they try to hold us back. <laughs> you see, before he ever fought Goliath, the battle had already raged in his heart. The battle wasn't on the hillside with Goliath. It was in here. It's always in here. The king said, put this armour on. Trust, trust in this. Trust in the armour. The temptations of the riches and the rewards were a temptation, you see, to his heart. Just a little thing. Get your eyes on this. Not on the vindication of God. Get your eyes on this. His beloved brother, who he wanted to respect and to honour, he's trying to deter him 
But he's not shifted, is he? His heart is set on God, you see. He wanted to honour the king. That's why he put it on. He wanted to respect his brother. Of course he did. He was not harsh and shouted back at him. He wasn't tempted a moment with the riches. He was thinking about the vindication of God. He didn't retaliate. He responded with a soft answer. He says, can't I even speak? It's amazing. Can't I just ask questions? Can't I say anything? David knew that God was with him. And so his attitude towards God, his composure with God, was fixed. Nothing was going to disrupt this. David's faith withstood the reasoning of the flesh. See, that's the battle as well with ourselves. To the child of God, the wisdom of this world and the ways of this world, they don't fit. They don't. It's two different worlds. How ridiculous. David looked in Saul's armour. The man was over six foot tall and David was just a lad. Can you imagine? Can you see him? Like, you know, his sword, he probably put it on his waist and it was on the ground, you know. Just not made for him. Of course not made for him at all. It looked ridiculous. I can't go in these, he said. <laughs> I can't do this. This is, this is, I, I want to be respectful to you, king, but I can't do this. This, this doesn't work. The world says, by all means, trust in your God. I, I get that. But have a plan B, in case it doesn't work. What are you saying? No, we need a plan B, because God might not turn up. If God doesn't turn up, David says, listen, if God doesn't turn up on bird food, it's as simple as that. There is no plan B. There's nothing. When I go, I go alone. When I go, I go with what I'm used to. When I go, I go with my God, whose name I am seeking to vindicate. Faith says, it's God or nothing. How did this boy manage to do this? It's amazing, isn't it? What a story. No wonder he went on to do mighty exploits. No wonder God said to him, listen, your house will last forever. And he goes, you sure? Are you sure? How are you so gracious to me? He said, I know you. I fashioned you. I made you. And you've been faithful to me all the time. Did he make mistakes? Yes, of course he made mistakes. But the faith he had in his heart 
was tremendous. We are the win or die, you see. That's what he said. That's why I'm not going to tell you the end of the story. Because it's so obvious. And it's not important. Because it already won the battle. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.